Vitus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? Now dig this, Matt. Y'all know I love stationery. Y'all know I love to take notes. I love to write. I love to write on paper. I love to write in notebooks. Matt, what'd you give me for Christmas this year? I got you notebooks and pens and organizers. Correct. I love it. Uh, and I find that it genuinely helps me remember things better as opposed to typing them or like putting them on a like a text file or whatever. Actually writing something down physically helps me a lot. It helps me organize my thoughts. It helps me get my work done. And ever since I got my new uh, iPad and I got the Apple Pencil with it, I have been doing that on there, and that's great. The only problem I've had with it, it doesn't quite feel like writing on paper, which is a feeling I like. We have the solution to that problem. That's right. Paper-like. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a screen protector for your iPad. It uses a proprietary technology called NanoDots. With those NanoDots, you feel the natural resistance of paper on your iPad screen. It is a paper-like feeling on your iPad. So if you're drawing, if you're taking notes, if you're using your iPad like you would a notebook, here's the way for it to really feel natural. And Chris, I know you love that. You you have an iPad, you got a paper-like and I'm sure it's, it feels just right for you. It does. It feels great to use. Also, Matt, you know I'm very particular about paper. I have yes. specific brands of notebooks that I will and will not use. And paper, like, feels good on the iPad. Uh, they also make accessories for the pencil to make the pencil a little more comfortable to hold. They make uh, accessories to help you clean the iPad as well. They've got it all. The ability to handwrite notes in a digital form is great to begin with, but getting that extra tactile feeling that makes me happy while I do it, <laughs> that gives me that little dopamine, that little serotonin burst that I like to have, is fantastic. The latest version of the Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils designed for maximum picture clarity. You're not going to lose any of the definition of your iPad screen if you put a paper-like on there. And these foils are developed exclusively for paper-like products. It also always comes in a set of two, so you have a spare. Look, we know a lot of artists listen to this show. If you're an artist and you're looking for a way to make drawing on your iPad feel a little bit better, this is how you do it. So, to pick up your paper-like, head over to paperlike.com slash Ajax, click Buy Paper-like, and select your iPad size. From now, right now, until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their digital pro planner bundle at no extra cost for every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. So if you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com slash Ajax to get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of War Rocket Ajax, the greatest comic book podcast in the world. That's right, Tom Caters. We are calling you out. <laughs> uh, my name is Chris Sims, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Eugene On. How's it going, Eugene? It's going well. Were we building a brand or something? I thought uh, I had a title or some sort, you know? Yeah, we'll, we'll get that later. <laughs> we'll put that in later. Here with Chris Sims of the Invincible Superblog. How's it going, Chris? Welcome back to the uh, the podcast in our second episode. Yeah, I'm excited about it. We had a lot of good feedback for the first episode, so thanks for everyone for listening. And um, I don't know, is there any any? We're on iTunes now, so you should go and subscribe to us and review us and rate us there. But is yeah, there if any... you're listening on the site, you can stream uh, the first episode, this episode, uh, any future episodes. You can always stream those at WarRocketAjax.com. But if you subscribe via iTunes, you can take us with you. On your personal MP3 listening device. That's right. And why don't you tell them uh, who's going to show up on the show later? Uh, yeah, later in the show, we are going to have a good friend of mine. We're going to have author Caitlin Kittridge. She's going to be here uh, talking about dialogue, which is the theme of today's show. Dialogue before- and writing and all kinds of stuff 
related to that stuff. So comics aren't just pictures; they're also words. They are, and uh, you can check us out online at warrocketajax.com. Email the show at warrocketpodcast at gmail.com, and you can Twitter us at hpydk and Chris at visb. So, uh, with that, let's get right into a, a little bit of news, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, so um, let's talk a little earth-shattering news. I think I went first uh, last week, so why don't we go with you first uh, this week? What's been going on in your world this week, Chris? Well, mainly uh, I want to talk this week about the webcomic Akewood. Uh, and we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this later because I think Chris Onstad writes some really great dialogue for his characters. But Akewood is one of the few things that I've ever been wrong about. Uh, and I don't often – I always say on my uh, on my website that I don't often admit I'm wrong because I am not often wrong. But when I started reading Akewood, I really it, – it just rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't really care for it. And I would tell people – I'd be like, yeah, Akewood, whatever. But then uh, a friend of mine convinced me to check out uh, The Great Outdoor Fight when they had it solicited from Dark Horse. And if there's one story that's going to get a guy like me to look something, it's the story of three acres, three days, 3,000 men uh, fighting each other. And so I, I bought the book. I read it, and I loved it. And since then, I've done a total 180 on it. I really uh, have started loving Akewood. See, I'm, but, kind of, I'm kind of in the middle. I don't dislike it. I don't love it. I, I think it's a great comic. It's great art, and it's got a lot of really amazing ideas. Um, it's something that I have to work at kind of going to and absorbing everything that's in there. And I fall in and out of following it, but, um, I started following it again really recently. Um, just kind of reading it on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm not sure I fully catch everything when I'm just quickly reading it while I'm at work. But I mean, it is, it is a great comic and it's, it's like one of, you know, the, the best web comics out there and one of the longest running ones also. So, you know. I, I'll have to check that book out. I've never, I've never gone back and read it. Yeah, well, it's it's good that you mention uh, reading it recently because that's what I wanted to talk about. Because most Akewood stories tend to take like a strange turn. They start out one way and then kind of go in a in a completely different direction than what they what you think they're going to go. But this latest one has taken the strangest turn that I have seen in yeah. the strip, and I've been reading through the archives. Uh it starts out with uh, Ray and Cornelius, two characters in the strip, uh, spicing up a William Sonoma housewares catalog by writing lesbian erotica uh, into the product descriptions. And then it continues into Ray challenging the president of William Sonoma to a sort of uh, kind of like a, a – a rap battle, <laughs> but with uh, the, they call it the new kings of sapphic erotica, and they're going to write lesbian porn while wearing elephant suits to h- hide their identities with the William Sonoma Corporation on the line. And so that's, I mean, that's a a strange premise and a strange turn there to begin with. But then, in maybe the past two or three weeks, it suddenly turns into a weird sort of German expressionist film of roast beef being kidnapped by death who flies a biplane. And then until uh, we're recording this on a Friday, but until today's episode went up, I was pretty sure that, uh, that Ray had died because he gets hit in the head with a book so hard that it splits his head open and he wrecks his car while they're trying to go save roast beef from this Ingmar Bergman looking death. And it's, I mean, it's a strange turn, but, you know, it's its compelling. It's its compelling and unsettling at the same time. Like, watching this, watching the multiple panels of him just sitting in the in a dark theater, just watching this film and then death showing up, and then it, it's, I, it's crazy. I, I, I was reading it when you were talking about it on Twitter, and I went back and read through the whole week, and I was just like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm completely lost, so. Yeah. The strip that went up today is Ray and Theodore upside down in the burning uh, Escalade that they've just wrecked. <laughs> Ray is is saying sentences that don't make any sense because he's bleeding from a, a a massive head wound, and then the last 
the last uh, tier of panels is this skeleton in a tuxedo bringing a steak knife <laughs> in in this this weird crazy paisley pattern background uh room it's nuts but it's it's i think if we ever do a uh if we ever do a podcast where the theme is strange turns <laughs> i think this one is is the strangest turn i have yet seen yeah, the book um, cleaving into his head was a pretty sudden shift of the storyline and uh, wasn't really sure how to take it. So I guess I'll just keep following it now. I'm intrigued now to keep reading it. So, you know. Yeah, it's it's certainly intriguing. It's certainly hooking <laughs> It's certainly hooking me as a fan. But yeah, if, if any of you out there haven't read Akewood or if you've given it a shot and and found it not to your liking, uh, try it again because it it took me a little bit to warm up to it, and now I, I just I love it. I, I'm a I'm a big fan. Yeah, and uh, it's definitely like I said, it's definitely one of the longest running web comics out there, and it's you know it's among the the, the legends in terms of the internet. So everyone should check it out. Uh, okay. One thing that happened to me this week is on Sunday I went to see the movie District Nine, and this also ties into a lot of what's going on this week, which is um, with Avatar Day. And the Avatar trailer getting leaked online and the internet completely going batshit crazy over whether or not Avatar looks like it's going to be a good movie is the fact that I kind of went to District 9 totally cold on it. Like, I hadn't read about it. I hadn't seen reaction. The most I'd seen was the original teaser trailer. And then I kind of stayed away from it because, for those who don't know, I used to, I'm a big movie nut. I used to be a film critic um, for some websites and then also a local paper uh, when I was in school. And I used to read everything about movies and I used to want to always be caught up in movies. And lately I've kind of been like, I don't want to read anything about movies because trailers and the reaction and the blogs are starting to ruin everything. And going to see District 9 kind of blind to what exactly was going to happen in the movie was like the total payoff for that new policy that I have in life. Um, Because I thought, I thought it was fucking fantastic. Like I, I thought it was one of the best movies I've seen in the longest time that I can remember. It was exciting. It was suspenseful. And quick spoiler, if you cover your ears for like five seconds, if you don't want to hear one tiny spoiler, dude in a robot suit kills another guy by shooting a pig at him. <laughs> I mean, come on. And, and in a totally serious way that you don't go, what, what the fuck just happened? Like, it's totally understandable in the context of this ridiculous battle I really had no desire to see that movie. I mean, nothing against it. I've just, you know, no desire to see that movie until you said that. Oh, man. See, like, the first half or the first two-thirds of the movie um, all builds up to this final act where it is a chase scene, and it's a total sci-fi battle um, between, like, alien weaponry and a guy in a robot suit. And if you've seen the trailer, like, the, the long trailer, you've seen scenes of this. And... The way that this robot suit and these guns kill people is so awesome that I strongly suggest anyone to go see it who likes action in any kind of capacity. And it's just funny because watching all these people go completely crazy over Avatar, um, when the movie is like how long away and we we know nothing about the plot and we know nothing about anything else other than a couple CGI images... Um, it's another good example of why it's kind of pointless to to argue over it to this degree. And you should just go see movies that you like, you know. Uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised. And I totally think that everybody should go see District 9. I think it's an awesome movie and it's a, it's a lot of fun to see too. So that was the most uh, earth-shattering news also. Also, I went to a bar on Wednesday that played the theme from Footloose, like on the speakers. Yeah, I saw you mention that. Completely unironically. And the the irony of it was that nobody in the place was dancing to it. And I was, I just, you know, it's just totally against the spirit of the song and the movie. And I felt kind of bad. I'm just going to come out and say it. Um, you don't have to enjoy Kenny Loggins, ironically. <laughs> no, that's, but you know, that's all I have to say about that. But it's just so, it just came on out of nowhere. And so you're saying... What you're saying is nobody cut, nobody cut. <laughs> no, no. It was. It's not even like a place that I dance for. It's just people lounging around, and all of a sudden you hear this. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> it's just, everybody kind of like looks around for a second, and Footloose just starts blaring over the speakers, and everyone just kind of shrugs and goes back to what they're talking about. The problem was there was they were uh, 
they were obeying all the rules. <laughs> they were. John Lithgow would be proud, or his character, whatever <laughs> his name was. I can't remember it. Uh, anything else going on? Uh, well, while we're on the subject of movies real quick, uh, like I said, we're recording this on Friday. Uh, today is the day that the new Quentin Tarantino film, oh, Inglorious Bastards, came out. Uh, I am looking forward to it, but I have not seen it. So hopefully by the next time we uh, by the next time we record, I hope I will have uh, caught that because I'm really looking forward to that. Because I just want to see people beat the shit out of Nazis <laughs> for two hours. That's all I want. That, if that was every movie, I would be happy. I was jo- I was joking with my friend that um, that cast of that movie really seems like it's like a My Fair Lady bet that Tarantino had with like Robert <laughs> Rodriguez. He's like, watch, I'm going to make all these guys badasses. And Robert yeah, Rodriguez is like, It's the craziest crazy. cast. It's, it's Eli Roth, <laughs> who is a director who had the... Uh, you know, who was in Hostel and uh, yeah, and, and he was in uh, Death Proof. Yeah, uh, and then B.J. Novak, <laughs> who is Ryan from The Office. Sam Levine, who's Neil Schweiber from Freaks and Geeks. Paul Rust, who is in that that I Love You Beth Cooper as like this skinny nasally nerd, and they're going around scalping Nazis. So you know, it's the perfect premise. <laughs> and with that, let's talk a little bit about comics. week the 500th issue came out which is one of the ones that i know both of us read yeah i i really liked it i've liked everything ed brubaker's done on that book and i feel like he had a really interesting time to come on after uh the brian bendis run which i think started off really good but it was like 80 issues long yeah so i feel like it you know and i'm you know again i'm not a huge uh fan of most of brian bendis's marvel work you know it's a lot of it's perfectly fine but it, it just doesn't do it for me and uh, Daredevil, I think, was probably the best book that he worked on as far as, as superhero stuff. But then getting, you know, it goes on for a long time, and I feel like it loses steam. But that last story arc sort of, you know, much like Ed Brubaker does in 500, it left Daredevil in a very strange place. Because at the end of the Brian Bendis run, he gets put in prison. So Ed Brubaker's run opens up with uh, with Daredevil in prison, and he does like, two um, – two story arcs of amazing stuff of daredevil in prison with uh the kingpin the owl bullseye and the punisher all in prison together (laughs) and it's some of the best like i'm a huge punisher fan more than more than anyone should be i like the punisher (laughs) but uh every maker does just does some amazing stuff and i think it's really held up since then uh sorry to see him go but he does a great job with 500 i think well i read the superman blackest night number one which was I, you know, I, I know that the the Blackest Night storyline is like basically this huge action movie that's not really the most dense storytelling, but it's still pretty <laughs> badass. I mean, the whole issue is, is pretty badass fighting with the uh, the zombie Superman from Earth 2 or whatever against uh, Superboy and Superman. Hang on a second. I want you to say that sentence again. I want you to say Superman fights the zombie Superman from <laughs> Earth 2. Superman and Superboy fight the zombie Superman from Earth 2. That's Superman and Superboy, who's the clone of Superman and Lex Luthor, who was dead, (laughs) but then got put in the Kryptonian gestation matrix for a thousand years and then came back from a thousand years in the future. I uh, I'm going to take your word as the comic uh, comic expert on uh, telling me the history of the absurd DC universe. So comic books. (laughs) This is and this is something that we're going to talk about with a future guest or two, perhaps. Um, is that I've been making an effort to go back and read a lot of DC titles because growing up, I did not read DC at all. I was a total like Marvel zombie, and I I read indie titles when I was going through college and stuff. And um, I've really made an effort to go back and learn stuff. The fact that I just said the sentence that I said <laughs> is incredible to some of my friends who knew me when I was younger. They they're probably are. Their eyes are bugging out right now because they can't believe I know that much about Superman. But um, it's a fun – it was fun, you know? Yeah. I will say, though, that that type of, of weird sort of convoluted, you know, craziness that you get – and D, it's really endemic uh, for DC. But a lot of people don't want to admit that Marvel has just as much craziness. It's just sort of expressed <laughs> in a different way. But, the, you know, we talked uh, – we've talked – it both in the people you don't know episode where I talked to you and when we talked to Matt Fraction last week uh, about sort of different things that comics can pull off. And there's nothing really on on TV or in movies or even in, you know, prose novels 
that operates in a shared universe on the scale of comics. You know, the most you can get is, gosh, I mean, you know, Buffy and Angel had the, you know, existed in the same universe. But, you know, comics, there's all this stuff that's been going on in the same universe. And so you have in that one, in that one, you know, sentence of Superman and Superboy fight (laughs) zombie Superman from Earth 2, you've got, you know, Superman, you've got, it ties into Legion of Superheroes, ties into Green Lantern because that's what's going on. It ties into, you know, this crazy Earth 2 stuff that I thought we were done with, but apparently we're not. <laughs> so, I mean, it's as much as I as as much as I kind of talk about how strange it is to have to say sentences like that. It, it is something that I really love about comics. Um, And b- before we get back to you, the last thing that I read of note was I read the first trade paperback of Air. And um, I didn't like it that much. So I have not read it. Uh, it just, it, again, you know, I've got nothing against it. It just didn't f- seem like uh, anything that would interest me. I, I had uh, read good stuff about it in, like, lists of comics that, you know, of this year or whatever that were going to be considered for awards. I There's a specific article I'm thinking of that I, I should look up. And it mentioned Air among a bunch of other stuff. So I picked it up. I did not like it. Um, I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was like ridiculous or stupid. It just was, it was trying a bunch of crazy ideas, not crazy ideas, but like unique ideas, a little outside the box that didn't work for me. So sorry, Air. Before we get out of this segment, why don't you tell us one more thing that you've read this week of note? Uh, well, as always, if anybody wants to find out what I've been reading this week, uh, they can always head over to theisb.com. Every Thursday night, I review comics, and I post a full list of everything I bought that week, which generally tends to be way more comics than any person should be getting. <laughs> you know, my, my favorite comic that I read this week was probably uh, Atomic Robo, but your favorite comic that you could pick up this week might well be uh, The Killer of Demons trade paperback which I wrote the introduction for. Uh, it's by Chris Yost, who co-writes uh, X-Force. Yeah. He co-created uh, X-23. And it's got art by Scott Wegner, who did uh, the art for Atomic Robo as well. It's a great, fun book about a guy who gets picked. You know, He's the one person on Earth who can see demons everywhere, and he's sort of charged by God to kill him. But he's not sure if he's actually going crazy or not. Uh, and I loved it which is why uh, Yost and, uh, asked me to write the introduction. So do me a favor, pick it up, uh, read it, read the eight paragraphs that I've got at the beginning, and then enjoy the comic. Nice. Um, and that website is the-isb.com um, if you want to check it out. But anyways, anyways, that's all the news and the comics that we have to talk about. So why don't we talk a little bit about dialogue and writing with uh, Caitlin Kittridge? What do you say, Chris? Let's do it. For God's sake! Strap yourself right, uh, today's guest on War Rocket Ajax is a good friend of mine, author Caitlin Kittridge, uh, here to talk about uh, dialogue with us. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Chris. And Eugene. <laughs> how's, how's it going? <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, Caitlin. Yeah, thank you for having me, you guys. Um, it's going good. I'm excited to be here. I've actually never done a podcast before, so you guys are my first. Oh. But you've done you've done other interview stuff, right? I know you did a, like a video interview from New York. And I you did. just recently did your first vlog. Right. I did a, I did a vlog um, from my closet because that's where my office is. I live in a studio apartment, and the only place to put my desk was a walk-in closet. And, um, yeah, I did, a, I did a video vlog from New York Comic Con where they kept asking me questions, and all my answers somehow related back to Batman. So I just looked like this enormous freak babbling on about Batman the entire time. And that is why you were on our show. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I assumed that's why I was here. I, I couldn't think of another reason. Well, um, today's show is all about dialogue and writing and comics, and uh, I had a question for both you and Chris, um, which on the surface seems like a very simple question, but um, I, I was going to run it by you guys to see what your first reaction is, and, and my question was going to be, since you're both writers, Caitlin, a successful published writer, Chris writes, you know, comics or whatever on the side. Chris has <laughs> and, a blog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Chris, has a, Chris has over 12 readers. But my question is, is that when, and I, and I know that, Caitlin, you're a comics fan as well, obviously. And uh, when you first read comics, new comics that, you know, you haven't read before, are you more quickly drawn to the art or the writing? 
Um, definitely the writing. I, I, I mean, I, if the art's really shitty, I obviously, I would put it at the bottom of the stack, but I really, I, I love good writing in comics because it is all dialogue. And it's a really hard format. I actually started out wanting to be a screenwriter, and doing all dialogue is, is really difficult. Like, if that's the only thing the audience is actually going to see, they're not going to see any of the directions or the intent behind it. It's, it's really difficult to pull off well. So anyone who can do it well has my everlasting admiration. Chris, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. If you, if you have ever read reviews that I write, I tend to, to focus on uh, writing and, and plot and especially dialogue. I'm a big fan of, of dialogue. And then I'll you know, throw in uh, an afterthought at the artist. I'll, I'll talk about how, you know, like this week I talked about how great Brian Clevenger's comedic timing was and how he wrote wonderful lines and had great guest stars. And the end. I'm like, oh, yeah, and Scott Wagner's really good too. Uh, so unless it's, unless it's some, somebody that I really love doing the art and unless there's something that I can really talk about, uh, like if it's Frank Whiteley or, uh, or, you know, obviously Jack Kirby, but I talk about Jack Kirby's writing as much as I talk about his art. Um, I really tend to focus as a reader on, on the writing. Well, um, and I don't want to throw anybody under the, under the bus or anything, but can you think of comics that had amazing writing and the art, was something that kind of turned you off and oh totally you still, and you still really loved it a lot of people know this i don't know if you do eugene but alan moore has worked with rob liefeld several times <laughs> he did a, a book called supreme that was created as a superman analog and then he sort of took it over and made it uh, a direct silver age superman analog and mostly it's it's rick veach and chris browse who did the art but there's a lot of rob liefeld and uh uh i want to say uh benitez and I like when I like when I was like I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, and Chris is like, "Oh, Rob Liefeld." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Rob after, Liefeld's after already last... there. Let's be fair; he's just waiting <laughs> under that bus. After last week's, uh, you know, uh, Matt Fraction's two-fisted defense of Rob Liefeld, we need to to restore the equilibrium. But you know, I mean, oh no, no, no! I I, I feel bad for him with that fan douchebag. I don't feel bad for him for some of the stuff that he has created. Yeah, I think he belongs exactly. under the bus for that. <laughs> yeah there's you know there's there's plenty of stuff and there's and there's times when uh you know bad art good art can complement good writing and bad art can kill good writing yeah. um grant morrison yeah. did a, a fantastic four miniseries with jay lee and again jay lee you know to, to borrow a phrase from matt fraction he's very good at what he does but there's vast sections of this yeah fantastic four story where you can't tell what's going on and there's you know Alicia Masters having a conversation with uh, with Sue Richards, and it's made even more difficult to understand because Sue's invisible. <laughs> but so yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of times. Caitlin, how about you? Yeah, the thing that really gets me in in comics is like goofy looking faces or faces that are too photo referenced. I find the ones that are overly photo referenced really creepy. So artists that tend more towards that, I may not pick up as many as their book, of their books, but it really it really depends on the writing. Like if it's something by a writer I'm really into, I'll suffer through a lot. Yeah, so we, we've had that. Me and Chris have talked a lot about the whole presence of photo realism in comics as opposed to the totally hand-drawn stuff. And I, I mean, I, I used to think that way a lot about 2D animation versus like CGI. And obviously now CGI animation is totally like Pixar and stuff is totally awesome. Right. Um, do you do you see a future where there will ever be a lack of strictly like very very plainly hand drawn comic art, and it'll all be kind of like that photorealistic stuff that a lot of these newer artists are employing? Um, oh yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's definitely going to stay, and I think you know enough obviously enough people like it. I'm, I just happen to find it kind of creepy when it's and, and some so it's a fine line, like some photo referencing, like. Um, I really love all the old, like, Tim Bradstreet Hellblazer covers, and those are, like, extensively photo-referenced, and I think those look great. But it's just, like, when it's continually throughout a comic and it's, like, utterly photorealistic, it starts to feel a little bit too much, like, I don't know, like reading a newspaper or something, if that makes any sense. But, um, no, I I think there's a place for it, and I definitely think it's here to stay. But at the same time, I think hopefully that there are enough people who enjoy, like, the actual hand-drawn stuff that there will always be a, a variety rather than just that because like you said you know with pixar like they started off being super the cgi animation started off being like all really super realistic you know there are going to be no more actors and brad pitt will be out of a job and now there's like wally so you know <laughs> carry that to its natural conclusion 
<laughs> Tim Bradstreet's also uh, a guy who uses a lot of photo reference, but he's also very consistent with it. Like when he draws yeah. Frank Castle, he's drawing Frank Castle. And right. when he draws John Constantine, he's drawing John Constantine. As opposed to a lot of guys who will use you know, different uh, photo reference for the same character. And yeah, you know, what, yeah. what distracts me there is the, the inconsistency. The, the one good instance of, like, actual, like, famous person photo referencing I can think of, and I can't even believe I'm about to pay this comic book a compliment, was, but was um, the Sam Jackson Nick Fury in the Ultimates. Like, I thought that was just great, and that was literally the only thing I enjoyed about the Ultimates. So, <laughs> really? I'm glad Sam Ultimates. Jackson was there. I love the Ultimates also. <laughs> I, I, the Ultimates is the biggest, stupidest, <laughs> dumbest, loudest, great comic. Uh, because I mean, I, I think Eugene, we talked about this before, right? About, about how you know Captain America should never yeah. act that way. He should never be a prick. Oh, sure, it's fine. He's not the real guy. Whatever. A lot of it comes down to I, I guess I am kind of defensive over the Avengers because they were some of the first comics I read, and I really I did not care for the reinterpretation. It was like watching a really shitty remake of a movie that was fine to begin with. <laughs> so that's just that's kind of what it felt like. And Chris has heard me rant about the whole issue, the whole other issue I have with the Ultimates, you know, like their rampant, raging sexism and the <laughs> crazy, icky undertones to all the stories and that stuff. There is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that that's not a, that's not in there because I think we can all agree that it is. I yeah. think we can agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think another thing about really photorealistic art and comics goes back to what me and Chris were talking about before we started talking to Caitlin was that there is a certain amount of ridiculous story, ridiculous plot and ridiculous dialogue that is coming out of these characters mouths and seeing them as these hyper realistic people. It, it clashes. Whereas if it's a, you know, a nice hand drawn cartoonish character you're more likely to forgive that when um, they're saying something completely ridiculous. So we're talking about zombie Superman from Earth 2 and things like that, you know? Right. Well, I've, uh, I've mentioned, uh, you know, I've sort of singled out Alex Ross before uh, as as being a, a prime example of that style that I don't like. Because, you know, for me, when Alex Ross, when Alex Ross draws Superman, it doesn't look like Superman. It looks like a guy in a Superman costume. Uh, when, and, you know, when he draws Batman, it doesn't look like like Batman to me. It looks like people. Uh, and uh, I think it was Darwin Cook uh, had a quote about this where he said that Neil Adams was the worst thing that ever happened to comics. And I mean, obviously, Neil Adams was not the worst thing that ever happened to <laughs> comics because he drew some amazing issues of Batman. But uh, he sort of inspired a lot of people to sort of go that, you know, really photorealistic uh, way Unlike guys like Alex Toth or or even Kirby, who used you know exaggerated anatomy to to get across what he was doing, um, but yeah, the the closer they look to real people, the more I have a hard time, uh, sort of identifying them as as the characters I feel like they're supposed to be when it's in when it's in you know mainstream comics that I, I feel emotionally invested in like with Batman and Superman. Yeah, I can I can add something there too about um the the visualization element that's necessary especially writing stuff like fantasy um cuz like I have my main character of my various series on most of my covers and people, you know, they they say well that's that's great but that's not at all how I imagined her looking and I'm like, well that's fine because she doesn't have to look that way she can look however you want. That's an essential component of the suspension of disbelief in my novels is to be able to just picture it in your head however it makes you comfortable and able to accept what's going on and you know that there's a werewolf detective <laughs> solving <laughs> crimes. I'll accept that there's a werewolf detective, but not that she has that haircut. Come on. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, she'd never wear that. That's the that's the kind of thing. So yeah, I, I basically that's the long winded way of saying I agree. The the closer they look to to like real people, the harder it is to kind of place your own filter onto the story and kind of and really get into it. But you obviously write your you write your books before you ever see any kind of cover image. Oh yeah. So have, yeah. have you ever gotten one? And I guess this is going to be an awkward question for you. But have you ever gotten a cover back where it's got uh, like Luna or Pete or somebody on the cover where they just do not look right. They they look you know off to the point of distracting you and the image that you came up with in your head when you wrote it. I've been lucky so far. Um, the model that they picked for Luna looked pretty close to how I pictured her. Like it, it's not how I picture her, but it's close enough that I felt okay with her being on the cover. Um, 
there was one cover where they originally like photoshopped some fire around her and it just kind of looked like the bottom of her pants were on fire and she was just walking around like that but it was just you know an unfortunate filtering incident and i my editor was like maybe we don't want the fire and i was like maybe we don't <laughs> maybe what? we want something else Clearly, what you should have done was go back and write a scene where she sets her pants on fire and kicks a guy in the face clearly. like Tony Jaw did in Ong Bak. Yeah, clearly. She should have been on fire, crashed through a window, punched a couple of guys in the face, and it's just for no reason. That should have, I should have just gone back and dropped that in there. Holding car batteries, probably all um, right. <laughs> I was wondering the, when we were going to get to the car battery. Every show. I'm going to have a bell that goes ding, 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 ding whenever we mention the car battery in Batman every single you should, episode. You guys need to. You, you, should you put really it, do. You should, you should make it the uh, reggaeton air horn that I like so much. <laughs> Real quick on the same topic, uh, unlike your other books, the the Black London series and the Nocturne City series, uh, mm-hmm. Black and White, that you the superhero novel you co-wrote with Jackie Kessler, that's got an art cover. That's got like a, a drawing on the cover of a superhero. Yeah, it um, does. And, and yeah, it was just an attempt to kind of telegraph that, you know, this is about superheroes. And if you if you read comics, you might like this. Hey, kids. <laughs> like Batman? <laughs> that You should have put that on the cover. Yeah, I should have. I, I lobbied. I lobbied to go a lot more comic booky than they they eventually did. Like, I wanted, like, a full-on painting with, like, comic book fonts. I wanted it to look like the cover of a graphic novel, basically, and Phantom x that. But, oh, well. I tried. <laughs> um, d- But did you have a lot of, uh, do you have a lot of input on what, uh, the cover was going to look like what, like what the character design was going to be? Um, it varies. Um, the Black and White was published through Bantam, and my other stuff is published through St. Martin's. And St. Martin's actually has been very good about consulting me and asking me what I think and sending me versions and letting me offer suggestions to the artist. And it's been it's been a good collaborative process. And with Bantam, they more kind of took our ideas, and then they came back and said, this is what it is. And fortunately, it was pretty good. So we were... Jackie and I said, okay, that's great. Instead of go, instead of calling up our agents and going, why? <laughs> Which is what you do when you get a bad cover. You can't say anything to your editor usually, so you call up your agent and go fix it. <laughs> and there's a whole chain of, of communication that goes on, and most of the time nothing happens, and you're stuck with it. And then you have to pretend to like it out in public. But that's never happened to me, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting back to, uh, to dialogue... Okay. You've written how many books? Let's see. Well, I have um, – there are four Nocturne City books out, and there's going to be two Black Londons out before the end of the year, so that's six. And then I have a YA coming, and I have one more Nocturne City. So um, there's eight eight that are going to be published, and then I have a couple more that I wrote that have either haven't gone anywhere or I just kind of set aside and I'm going to recycle them for something else. So I'd say probably like close to 11 manuscripts total, not counting the trunk novel. And you're how old? Um, I'm going to be 25 next month. Yeah, I hate you so much. <laughs> um, but you, you've written, you know, a, a good deal of books. But as a novelist, you sort of got an opportunity that that comics writers and, like you said, screenplay writers don't have, where your phrasing and your word choice can come through in every aspect of the book, not just in the dialogue. That's so correct. So do you think about... Do you think a lot about, you know, writing uh, clever descriptions, writing memorable lines, as opposed to just writing memorable, like, lines for your characters to say to each other? Um, I kind of try to think of it as a whole picture, because ideally every sentence in the text crops up every other sentence, and it works on a couple of levels, and it doesn't always happen that way, for me at least, but (laughs) I try, and um, I come from a very kind of minimalist school of writing, like, I grew up reading, like, old pulp detective novels a lot and a lot of noir and stuff like that so I tend to write very kind of spare descriptions and very kind of bare bones dialogue and then my editor comes back and says I have no idea what's going on in this scene because you didn't tell me anything and then I flush it out but yeah I I try to think of it kind of as the whole I I try to let the descriptions add to the dialogue and I try to let the dialogue add to the characterization and as uh as I'm going through and just writing a first draft and like I said, usually mixed results. I know but that that's, uh, ideally that's what happens when I'm writing. I know that uh, on your website you'll occasionally post like a a line that you were particularly pleased with. But do you have any out of your out of your uh, eleven manuscripts? Do you have any particular favorites? Like like this is the best line that I've written. Um, 
oh my gosh, I'm really fond of the opening line of Street Magic, which is the novel that came out in June. Um, and it's about a couple of mages in London um, who are trying to stop a ghost from kidnapping children and sucking out their souls. I'm gonna. It's a feel, gonna it's a feel good novel. <laughs> I'm gonna look online and read the first uh, the first novel. Yes. Can, can, can actually, you recite it? I actually or? have it. I actually have it sitting right here. If you want me to read it for you, oh, please do. Yeah, from the author's mouth. <laughs> yep. Um. So this is from the very first chapter, and the first sentence is: um, "Michaelmas daisies bloomed around Pete Caldecott's feet the day she met Jack Winter, just as they had 12 years ago on the day he died." And it took me so long to come up with that sentence, but it's like. It, that was the way it came out, and it was just, like, perfect the first time. And it, that usually never happens with me, so I was really proud of that one. I was like, finally, I'm learning how to do this. Well, <laughs> let's, compare and, let's compare and contrast. Chris, can you remember a memorable line that you've written in uh, your Action Age comics that off the top of your head? I love everything Minxie Flatbush says. <laughs> I, I will say the first thing that I wrote for Woman of Action, um, you know, here, here's a little a secret origin for you. Uh a couple of years ago, or last year, I think, the uh, Shadow Line, which is an imprint of Image, had a contest where you could, uh, as a writer, which nobody ever has contests for writers, but you could create a superheroine. And so a lot of people that I know, uh, Chad sent one in, uh, Benjamin Birdie sent one in, and I sent in what would eventually become Woman of Action. And the first scene that I wrote in my head, the first thing I came up with for the series was when she was in the uh, underground casino and they had rifled through her uh, her room and stolen her underwear and so the first the first sentence i wrote was uh was uh yes gustav you may keep her lacy underzings <laughs> so that's and, and i still i still think that's funny it's, that's that is a very good compare and contrast to the uh, the two memorable lines of uh, yeah. two authors side by side. It does not have the poetic language, the symbolism, the 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 good structure of Caitlin's line, but it it makes me laugh. And that's important. And that's important. I I I do like making people laugh. Although, unfortunately, because of my genre, I can't just do that. I have to usually sneak it in in the middle of something else. Well, let, let's talk to both of you since both of you have experience writing. Uh, let, what, is, what is your writing process when you actually sit down? I, I was reading on Caitlin's blog a, a little bit about when she actually works and, and throughout the day. But could you talk a little bit about your working process in like a typical day where you want to get a certain amount of work done? Sure. I've got to say, uh, I read, I read uh, Caitlin's blog and I read a, a mutual friend of ours, Rochelle Mead. I read her blog. And I see you guys posting your word counts and how you've written like, like, you know, like I did 6,000 words today and I'm just blown away by that. I can't imagine writing that much. So I'm always a lot of coffee. (laughs) 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 Um, I drink tea, which, which may account for my lower word counts, but, um, yeah, well, um, I usually try to do one session of like actual drafting in the afternoon if I'm working on something and I try to work on like edits or answering questions for interviews or blogging or something in like another little session, like either after lunch or if we're being honest after dinner, because I'm tend to be something of a night owl to the point where I'm usually not awake if it's still the morning. (laughs) Um, But but yeah, I, I, if when I'm actually drafting, I sit down, I usually put on some music, I figure out what I need to have happen and then I just do it. I mean, it sounds really boring and non-magical when I just say it I just I just write <laughs> and if it's not going well I look at pictures of kittens on the internet <laughs> Chris uh, does the same thing from what he's told me when he can't write <laughs> <laughs> for me I'll tend to have an idea that I'll work on for a long time in my head that I'll just kind of think about uh, and and get the different elements of the story in place where I want them. And and for me, the hardest thing is figuring out how things end. I'm really, it's really easy for me to come up with a, a premise, but it's hard for me to figure out a resolution. So I'll play with things in my head for a long time. And then once I've got everything sort of laid out to where I want it, the actual writing comes really quick. Uh, you know, I, I, I did the script for uh woman of action in a week, which, you know, <laughs> which is pretty fast for me. 
That, that's right, Caitlin. 24, 25 whole pages in a week. So <laughs> deal with it. Um, but yeah, the, the actual, I'm going to try to pick up the pieces of my shattered life and move on. <laughs> the actual uh, writing process for me is is doing the dialogue, doing the, you know, laying out the panels is really uh, quick. And then I'll, you know, because I've only done stuff that I'm self-publishing, I, I have the luxury of being able to go back and and fiddle with the dialogue up right up to the point where it's lettered. And then once it's lettered, it's done. But, you know, I'll think about a plot and I'll think about plot elements for, you know, months, for weeks before I actually sit down and write a single word of the script. Let's, let's talk about dialogue in, in our favorite comics. And yeah, um, Caitlin, I know you're a big fan of Warren Ellis, but uh, yeah. is there, is there any other, I did. I I thought he didn't touch people at conventions, but I guess he made no. an exception for you. He. I was waiting in line with with Jess actually, who can who can vouch for this story because I let him stand in line with me. And yeah, Warren came walking by to do his signing, and he was like, "Kaylin," and gave me a big hug, and it was like a drive-by hugging. <laughs> I felt special after that. The guy behind me in line was like, "Dude, that's the awesomest thing I've ever seen." <laughs> do you think anyone else in that line got a hug? No, nobody else got a hug. I was the only one. Fair enough. Um, yeah. But so that's it, my that's my forever Comic Con anecdote. It, it in all the comics that you've read, um, is there any uh, piece of dialogue that really like stuck out and was really memorable to you? Like, basically, what's your favorite piece of comic book dialogue that you've ever read? Okay, the answer the answer to this is it's actually not not one of Warren's. Sorry, Warren. I love I love all of Warren's dialogue, so it's really hard to pick out a piece of his because his is kind of cumulative. Like it builds on it builds on each thing that each character. You do not says. have to apologize because I'm sure Warren Ellis is not listening to this. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I'm sure he's not either. Yeah, but I, I'm just trying to I'm trying to explain why. You should definitely email the show if Warren Ellis is listening to this right now. Just get to your computer, email <laughs> us. Just let us know. You don't have to come to the show. Just be like, I'm listening, and that'll be enough. Yeah, he can just he can just Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, he's, but yeah, his, his dialogue is really like, it's, it's, it's all really interlocked and there's always like these payoffs that come down the road from, from other scenes that he's written. And it's, it's really hard to just pick out one thing. I like, I like pretty much everything that he writes at the risk of sounding like a crazy fangirl. And I, I am a fangirl. I'm just not crazy. <laughs> I'm not running off to tattoo myself right now. I am just off the top of my head because I'm looking at my, at the shelf of comics that I have unpacked right now and um, Watchmen's right there. I just, I love a lot of the dialogue from Watchmen, but I, well, first I'm going to tell you my favorite part and then I'm going to tell you a funny story about going to see the Watchmen movie and how apparently everyone else in the theater was an enormous dork like I was. Um, so I, I love, I love Rorschach's, you know, I'm not locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with me. That's to my mind, one of the greatest lines in, comics just because it just works so well it just encapsulates everything about his character in that one sentence if there was a really hard to do and it's really great if there was a comic book dialogue hall of fame i think that would be a entrant number one (laughs) yeah yeah and i know it's a cliche answer but it's the truth and i i do love it and so now i have to tell you a related story (laughs) about seeing the Watchmen movie and um we're watching along and there comes there comes the prison riot scene and you know, nobody else around me seems to be really digging on it. And, you know, I, whatever, however you feel about the movie, I was like, come on, guys, this is cool. Things are blowing up. There's a midget. Look. Yeah. And and so um, he comes up and, you know, and he's, he's doing his little speech about, like, you know, you're in there. What do you and you know I got I got this and what do you got and like me and half I swear half the theater goes your hands. <laughs> so it's like it's great how how memorable like memorable dialogue just sticks with people and just becomes kind of part of the greater subconscious and it happened um it's happened at other comic book movies too where they're lifting stuff directly from the books and there's you know a moment of dialogue that a lot of people recognize there's a lot of people like hooting and hollering dialogue wise i love practically everything that comes out of the joker's mouth if you get a good writer on the joker like i would just sit there and like read him talk shit to Batman all day. <laughs> I want Marvel to put out a small paperback, the quotable Dr. Doom. I would oh, buy that. In see, a... I love Dr. Doom. I think Dr. Doom's the coolest. I, he's, I would, he's I would, great. 
I would just buy like a, I would buy like a greatest hits of Dr. Doom, just like various panels where he says awesome stuff and beats up yeah. the Fantastic Four. I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm probably like the only guy who is not a big fan of John Byrne's run on Fantastic Four, but you know, every issue he does with Dr. Doom is, is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and the recent, I, I think uh, I actually wrote a blog entry once called, I fucking love Dr. Doom. I can't remember. It might be that <laughs> back somewhere in my archives. The, there's a recent uh, Doctor Doom and the Masters of Evil series that Paul Tobin wrote um, that uh, in addition to that series, which is fantastic, which you know ostensibly was part of Marvel's kids line, but it you know that last issue is such an amazing Doctor Doom story. Like there's no reason for it to not be, you know, for, for anyone who likes comics to not read that series. But it also reprints the uh, one of the John Byrne Fantastic Four issues where he, he launches the Baxter building into space the second time. <laughs> and it's, it's got, you know, his, uh, he's about to put the, uh, the mask on for the first time and they've just pulled it out of the furnace and, and he, you know, demands that they bring it over and they're like, but you know, but it'll cause you so much pain. And he goes, you know, pain is a thing like love or like compassion. It is a thing for lesser men. I'm like, <laughs> Oh fuck. Yeah. Dr. Doom. Anyways, what are some of your favorite dialogue moments, Chris? There's a lot of writers that write dialogue that I really like. You know, Grant Morrison, uh, his All-Star Superman is just full of great lines. And, you know, every time I read that last issue when Superman says, you know, I love you, Lois Lane, until the end of time, just, you know, just, you know, rips my heart out. Uh, Garth Ennis does phenomenal dialogue, and he's so good at uh, non, you know, nonverbal or, 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 or non, yeah, I guess nonverbal expressions is what you call it. Uh, I always talk to to my friend Ken about the scene where in the second story where Jesse Custer's get Jesse Custer gets the the word back and he's about to go kick everybody's ass and he's got the ghost of John Wayne talking to him and you know he goes you know you talk the talk partner now let's see you walk the walk and then he walks out and he's smoking a cigarette and he goes you know he just lets out this long string of H's and it's just right and, and you just know he's about to go fuck everybody up but I gotta say the best dialogue in comics hands down End of story. Best dialogue in comics, Frank Miller. And you can, you know, you can take away everything that he's, you know, even with everything that he's done recently that people have kind of, you know, have sort of flipped out about, you know. Uh, and even and even All Star Batman, whether you like All Star Batman or not, it's got memorable lines. <laughs> And Frank Miller, to me, he is the Coen brothers of comics because I could sit here and and just quote from memory Big Lebowski all night. Uh, and Frank Miller is like that because everything he writes in uh, Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, his Daredevil run, Sin City, uh, you know, 300. I mean, had had, you know, Madness, This is Sparta, which uh, in the comic is not shouted <laughs> it's just got like a nice little period at the end of it. Um, I think Sherrod but, Butler is, is incapable of not shouting things in movies. I think yeah, that's where the problem lies. I have not seen 300. Uh, like I haven't seen Watchmen for, 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 you know, no particular reason. I just have never seen it. But I really like the way that line works in the comics where he just, you know, gives that guy the boot and then like kind of as an afterthought, like, oh, yeah, like you, you didn't know. <laughs> you might not have known <laughs> where you were. But um, Dark Knight Returns, uh, every... Every bit of Dark Knight Returns is such a, a, a perfect line. There, there's a perfect line for every character, and especially like Batman has 400 perfect lines in that book. Uh, and the, I can't count the number of times that uh, Matt Smith has sent me art for Solomon Stone, and I've just responded with good soldier, good soldier. Uh, but, you know, this isn't a, a mud pit. It's an operating table, and I'm a surgeon. The Joker, the Joker, seeing Batman on TV and kind of coming out of uh, his catatonic state and with his, you know, Batman, darling, you know, perfect, amazing dialogue. But I gotta say, um, we've talked about Batman R.I.P. a couple times, and the the dialogue in in R.I.P. is so good. And I'm telling you, in in ten, twenty years, people are going to be quoting Batman R.I.P. like we quote Dark Knight Returns today. It's you know amazing lines in there that page with uh where batman says you know that's the thing about batman batman thinks of everything i want i want that blown up and put on my wall i love it so much but that's my favorite comic book dialogue 
unless you got uh, any more dialogue, Caitlin, we do have uh, some Twitter questions for you. Oh, questions. Let's do questions. I don't, I don't have any more dialogue off the top of my head. So, yeah, let's do questions. Okay. Um, our first question comes, of course, from Kevin Church, uh, the writer of The Rack, of Lydia, who wrote a cover girl for Boom Studios, good friend of mine, Kevin Church. He wants Hi, to know, what's your favorite New Jack Swing song? I don't like Matt Fraction. I don't have an answer. <laughs> because well, I have just, absolutely no clue what the fuck he's talking about. Uh, you know, Boys to Men. You might yeah, have been. But you might be too I'd, young. I'd rather, I'd rather just pretend I don't know what he's talking about. It's better <laughs> than reliving the painful memories. Okay. Uh, next question. Um, this one comes from Phoenix7 on Twitter. Uh, question is, do you like cupcakes? I do like cupcakes. I, I like okay. chocolate cupcakes better than vanilla cupcakes. Okay. Yeah. Um, this question uh, comes from Max to the Max, and he wants to know uh, if you have considered doing any work in comics. Um, I would love to work in comics. I, I would absolutely love it. I would love to write for either of the big two or, you know, do something smaller, create our own, <laughs> ideally both. Um, I basically want to be Ed Brubaker when I grow up. <laughs> That's my goal. That's a good but, goal. No, I would. I, I would love. I would love to work in comics. Um, I went to Comic Con this year. I I feel I made some good contacts. I don't really think it would be good to talk about it in a public forum right now. But watch this space. Maybe in a couple of months. You never know. Have you and uh, Jackie Kessler thought about doing anything with Black and White as far as as uh, since it's a, a superhero story? Have you thought about doing anything comics wise with that? Yeah, we talked about it, and um, we haven't really had any interest in it from anyone who would be in the position to sort of help us with the adaptation like you know Dable Brothers is the big one that takes books to comics and so yeah I mean if, if the opportunity arose I was certainly wouldn't be averse to it but there hasn't really been a lot of movement on that front so I would I would say yeah theoretically I just you know nobody's nobody's told me about anything you know Jackie could have some sinister plot going on that I know nothing about she's wily that way if Dan DiDio and Joe Casada heard this podcast, which again, I assure you, they're not. Um, and they called you up tomorrow and each one said you could have one book, any book from Marvel, any book from DC, what would you do? Oh my God. Um, the DC one's hard. I, I say, um, I say for DC, I'd probably kind of want to go the Brian Azarella route um, and write just a mini with, with the, the Joker, just going around being the Joker. Cause I love the Joker. He's my favorite DC character. I, I would love to just be able to have fun with him and, you know, let him, let him fuck shit up and make, make people smile for five issues or whatever. Um, Marvel, um, Chris probably knows the answer to this, actually. But um, Marvel's a no-brainer. I would, I would love to write an Iron Man book for Marvel because I love Iron Man. And I think he's a great character and he's, he's an interesting character. And um, I, think I, I think he and I mesh really well as far as writer character goes. Uh, one last Twitter question. Well, we've got... Uh... We've got the one that I, I mentioned to you before we started recording. We had our first marriage proposal of the evening, which uh-huh. I'm sure I'm sure once people hear your views on the Joker, Iron Man, and uh, the Baroness Industrio, you're going to be getting a lot more. Uh, but our final question comes from Katie Bryan, uh, and he says, uh, as a respected fantasy author, uh, he must ask you this obvious question. What or who was your favorite member of the A-team and why? Um... Well, I think that's an obvious answer, don't you? I mean, it's always Mr. T. Really? I, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't expecting you to say uh, B.A. Baracus. I, I had you pegged as a Howlin' Mad Murdoch girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can be surprising. <laughs> no, and actually, that... I, mostly, I mostly just like their van, um, quite honestly. I don't really care about the A-team. I just wanted their van. <laughs> and that is our questions from Twitter. Yeah, and... Uh... Thanks, Twitter. <laughs> Before we let you go, do you want do you want a chance to plug anything, Caitlin? I do. Um, actually, I have I have two things I'd like to plug. Um, I have a book coming out on September first that is the fourth book of in the Nocturne City series. Um, that's called Witchcraft, and that will be available at fine bookstores everywhere. And then um, next spring, it's very far off, and I'm very excited about it. Um, I have my first young adult novel coming out, um, and it's called The Witch's Alphabet, and I'm super super excited about it. And it's also my first hardcover book, so doubly exciting and it's really long so if you don't like it you can use it to bludgeon people you can throw <laughs> it like a car battery because <laughs> it's going to be a big fat hardcover 
even uh, even if I wasn't a uh, a fan of your work already, I think Witch's Alphabet really sounds really sounds good. Uh, oh, and if any you. of our if any of our listeners want to find out more about uh, the Nocturne City series, which is about uh, Detective Luna Wilder, who is a werewolf who solves crimes, or uh, the Black London series, or there's a second uh, there's a sequel to Black and White coming out too, right? Right, it's coming out next spring. Um, no release date yet, but, de- but definitely spring. And it's called Shades of Grey, and it's, it picks up right where Black and White left off. So awesome. if, if y'all liked that and were kind of bugged by the cliffhanger, then you, you, will, get your, you will get your answer <laughs> next spring. And where can they find out about all these fine works of literature? Um, you can visit my website, which is Um You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kate Kitt, K-I-T-T. And um, I have a Facebook, and I'm pretty much anywhere you can think of. If you, if you look for me, I'm there. But, yeah, my, I have a blog at my website, and I have a list of all my books and much other relevant information. Thanks so much for stopping by, Caitlin Kittridge. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. All right, before we get to our final segment tonight, it's time for another installment of... Here all my Chris, who's hating on you on the internet this week? Uh, believe it or not, Eugene, no one is hating on me this week. But we do have a very special guest who did have someone hate on him. So please welcome back, Caitlin Kittredge. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Chris. Hi, Eugene. Hi, Caitlin. I understand you've got a hater this week. I did have a hater this week. Um, without naming names, um, I I found somebody was a little bit upset with um, some writing that I'd done and felt that he needed to impart some information to me, um, which and I think my response is best expressed in a tweet, uh, actually two <laughs> tweets. So I'm just going to read my response to, to this whole thing when I found it through Google Alerts. <laughs> um, so my first tweet says, I'm not Alan Moore. Where would I be without LiveJournal users to tell me such things? And then a couple of minutes later, I, uh, I, I, I added to that by saying, living in England and growing a luxurious beard, motherfuckers, that's where. <laughs> and then at that point, and then at that point, Chris came in and was like, but you don't have a beard. And it, it kind of went off the rails from there. But yeah, that's my, that's, that's my hater this week. So if you're listening, dude, keep it classy. <laughs> big ups. Yeah, big ups. I think you should uh, take some time out of your daily life and list the ways in which you are not Alan Moore. You can start with uh, you liked the Watchmen movie. <laughs> I do. I like the Watchmen movie. Um, you, I don't have a you beard. Watched, you watched the Watchmen movie. That's, I watched the Watchmen. I, I, I don't have a beard. Um, I'm not British. Um, Neil Gaiman is not my best friend and was not best man at my wedding. So that's a big one. But you um, do worship an Egyptian snake god. I do, I do. See, that's in, the, in that way, we are totally alike. So I can understand where the confusion came into play, but no, he he reminded me. He brought me back down to earth. I am not Alan Moore. It's a good thing, too, because I'm pretty sure that Alan Moore listens to this program. I'm almost positive. <laughs> yeah, he, we can deliver. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much for sharing your hater with us, Caitlin. We won't take up any more of your time, but please. Oh, it was my pleasure ever... to share the hate. Yeah, if you ever have uh, a couple hours you want to kill, we would love to have you back. Uh, come back in the spring and tell us about your new books. I, I will. I will come back in the spring and tell you all about The Witch's Alphabet. So thank you very much for having me, you guys. Thank you so thank much. You, that wraps up another episode of War Rocket Ajax. Really quickly before I let you guys go, I wanted to talk about a, a show on BBC Five Live Radio called Pods and Blogs, which is hosted by Jamila Knowles. Uh, that show is actually having a comics culture podcast and radio show this coming week. You can find out more information about the show at bbc.co.uk slash blog slash pods and blogs. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. Jamila actually emailed us and asked us to be on that show. But because they're in the UK and with our jobs and our schedules, we couldn't get anything lined up. So uh, hopefully Jamila can have us on a future episode. And thank you again for asking us. And we're sorry we couldn't work it out. But everyone should go check out pods and blogs and go check out that link because they're going to talk about comics this week. Thanks to our uh, guest this week, Caitlin Kittridge. Uh, if you want to find out more about her and her novels, you can check out CaitlinKittridge.com. We'll have all these links for you in the show notes at WarRocketAjax.com. Uh, as always, thank you to Rusty Shackles, the official artist of War Rocket Ajax. You can find his work at TabletopFetus.com, or you can check out some of the stuff he's done for me at ActionAgeComics.com. Uh, that's what we've got for this week, so thank you for listening. And... Please, uh, if you have any questions, email us at warrocketpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me at on Twitter slash 
D-I-S-B. That's T-H-E-I-S-B. And follow me at huge P-Y-D-K. And you can follow Rusty at uh, twitter.com slash Rusty underscore Shackles. Join us next week. We'll have another great episode of War Rocket Ajax with our special guest, Jess Nevins, uh, research librarian and comic book annotator. He's done annotations for Kingdom Come. He did annotations for a ton of Golden Age stuff, but most people know him from his three volumes of annotations for Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So we'll be talking to him. Uh, in a very smart conversation, I'm sure. I'm sure we won't get distracted and talk about Batman for an hour again. And we are on the iTunes store, so everyone should go to the website, click on the link, and write a review for us if you have the time. It really helps get the word out about the show. And uh, again, thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, see you guys next week. Yeah! It's for every one of us. Stand for-